So thanks everyone for coming. Uh, I know it's like 5.30 p.m. It's almost 6 p.m. dinner time, et cetera. So I really appreciate, appreciate you being here. Um, I, I, I'm just curious, how many people have used recognition and built something with it? Is there anyone that's new to recognition that hasn't used it before? Okay, awesome. Um, so the, the title here is a little obtuse, if you will, you know, unlocking media workflows with recognition, what does that re really mean? Um, and you know, as many of you that have used recognition know, over the past year, um, we've added a whole bunch of uh, new, say, API endpoints and options. We added OCR uh, last week. Um, but you know, most of the initial use cases were um, extracting object labels or doing face collections, et cetera. Um, but really what we're seeing, what we're starting to see now is that um, uh, quite a few customers are looking at the labels that come out of recognition and then trying to figure out how do I normalize these labels? How do I use this like with my own taxonomy, for example? Um, you know, maybe I don't want people, person, maybe I want human, for example. Um, and then how can I do other things like clean up the data, the images, et cetera, before I actually funnel this into recognition? Um, and then the other thing is if I'm getting labels back, you know, potentially I could utilize those labels as a way to figure out how I should, say, transcode my content. Um, so if I have a digital supply chain and a lot of media moving through that, um, and it's maybe user-generated content, and these are small files, but I really want to optimize the speed at which I transcode, uh, create proxies or whatnot. Um, maybe I want various encoding profiles that are keyed off of the labels that are coming back from, say, the media that's been landed. So, you know, maybe labels uh, where most of the frames are identified as humans, uh, or people, I'd want to use a different encoding profile to say things that are associated with maybe action content, if you will. Um, so just about me, um, my name's Konstantin Volms. I work on um, the M&E team, so a lot of these kind of use cases that we see, um, you know, we try and condense down into things like reference architectures. Um, we built a reference architecture for recognition. Uh, you know, you could take that, deploy it, um, and then some of these concepts are interesting things to maybe build on top of that. Or if you have a pipeline, uh, you know, potentially look at ways to enhance that. Um, so a lot of this is fairly explanatory, right? But I think the interesting thing that drives these use cases for um, us in terms of reference architectures and things like that that we build um, is the scale of content that we see on the media side, customers uh, landing, be that UGC or um, you know, content, say, feature film content, et cetera. Um, and then the need to extract some kind of automated metadata. So if it's an asset management system, um, you know, maybe one of the impetus points there are, could we look at um, automatically curating this content and tagging it with metadata? And then maybe we don't need a first um, set of QC people to look at that data um, before it gets into the asset management system. You know, maybe we could put it in different bins uh, and then have different people that are specialized in those areas classified after that. Um, you know, so we, we at least uh, on the media side, there's obviously a lot of image uh, data. So if you look at a lot of the media companies, many are bringing full image archives onto AWS um, and then storing like all the high quality assets in Glacier and maybe the the proxies or the deliverable assets, if you will, um, on S3 or S3IA. Um, and similar for um, you know, media content as well, right? So we're seeing a big shift from um, you know, what was maybe smaller amounts of media content to a large amount of VOD. Um, you can also look at things like elemental media services. Um, so there's a lot of impetus for live content to come in, get recorded, and then maybe run through things like recognition. Um, so the question here is, you know, if we're extracting these labels, um, that's great, that enriches the content potentially or helps enrich it. Um, but what about using those same processes, you know, maybe it's Lambda functions that we have as part of the supply chain or a pipeline, um, using that to enhance or that data as a feedback mechanism. Um, and if we look at just a simple pipeline, right, um, there are potentially things we can optimize on the ingest side. 
Um, there are things that we could optimize on the storage side and then obviously pre and post analysis um, to basically look at enriching the data, cleaning up images, um, you know, denoising all of these other approaches to processing that. Um, and then actually, well, skip to there, um, using that as a feedback loop um, back to our storage system. Um, and then potentially we can use that to reprocess data. So um, like one example that I'll talk about is potentially images that have a lot of fog in them. And that's part of, um, you know, maybe it's a camera artifact and it's not a content artifact. Um, recognition would identify a lot of these types of things as atmosphere, as a tag coming back. Um, we could look at that and see, okay, this is, we're not expecting to get this content, uh, you know, run like a retinex algorithm against it, pass it back to recognition, and then we actually remove that noise off the front of the image and get back valid labels. Um, so these are, you know, interesting use cases here. Um, and the other thing here is obviously why would you do this as a managed service? Um, you know, if you think about all of the recognition um, endpoints, if you will, um, you know, you should look at each one of those. If you built that out as a, um, you know, service from the ground up, maybe using TensorFlow, et cetera, uh, whatever the, the models and frameworks are, um, you know, you have to be concerned with versioning, updating, blue-green, deploying, um, all of these pipelines, um, and then maintaining a velocity. So, um, you know, one of the key things with uh, recognition is that if you have facial collections, you can scale up to 10 million faces. Um, if you're passing in image data, it could be coming off of S3 and the service knows how to parse it. Um, but the other thing is the deterministic nature of passing in image data. So, you know, depending on the size and type of image, I know I may get a response back in 500 milliseconds to two seconds. Um, so that kind of deterministic response rate for things like supply chain, user-generated content, um, you don't want to have to wait for something like an autoscale group to spin up uh, to facilitate that. Um, and then all of the you know, native uh, key endpoints that I'll talk about too. Um, so for those that are new to recognition, you know, a, a lot of these um, uh, APIs have different, obviously, use cases, right? But the, the primary ones that um, are useful from this particular perspective are object and scene detection uh, and potentially text detection as well for where we can't get accurate objects um, and scene confidence returned. Um, facial analysis, et cetera, to a lesser extent, um, although um, those can also be used for, as feedback mechanisms. Um, the same with image moderation too. Um, and then the applicability here, um, also for those that are you know, new to this in this, the media space, um, is that um, there's definitely the ability to reuse a lot of the code. So if it's Docker containers you're building, if it's Python code in Lambda, if it's Node.js, um, you know, whatever it is, um, that, uh, you know, that code base that you build can start being reused for different purposes. So um, the Python code that is used for, say, maybe a supply chain process to pass an image to recognition and then funnel the output data into Dynamo, um, that code could be repurposed for, say, local editing, where as uh, images you know, land on, say, a local file system, um, you could run the same Python script, but instead of injecting data into Dynamo, you're maybe re-injecting it into the EXIF data on the images. Um, and then your editors that are using, say, um, local Windows or Mac or whatever their tools are, um, they could have a local file system search uh, or asset search in the applications they're using. So we see a lot of that, you know, everything from Mac OS Finder to injecting tags there. Uh, to things like Premiere, you know, JSON automation, et cetera, um, and Photoshop, et cetera. So very useful from that perspective. Um, and then the other thing we frequently see is, uh, you know, recognition is very easy to get up and running with, make API calls, get data back uh, with confidence scores, and then do whatever we want with it. Um, but there are considerations across these, you know, uh, if you want to look at this as uh, boundaries or pillars within, uh, say, supply chain or media processing. So on the content side, 
um, you know, dealing with different file formats. We need a way to normalize the data, like maybe it's different uh, streaming protocols, for example, right? Um, or MP4s or AVIs or whatnot. Uh, we need some way to normalize that before we pass the data to recognition. On the processing side, um, you know, obviously the storage and networking. So if we wanted to do image cleanup uh, and we we're maybe using ECS and we we're hydrating the content, uh, say from S3 to EFS, to then run workloads against it to maybe clean up the content, transcode it, um, whatever we're doing. Um, obviously the storage and network I.O. is important for this. Um, and that directly relates to I.O. for actually dealing with the data. Um, because if we're getting 500 milliseconds to say two seconds and that's deterministic, we don't want to skew that number um, you know, by having a uh, you know, high latency uh, hydration uh, as part of this process. So that's kind of key to that too. Um, <clears throat> and then on the quality side, you know, it sort of relates to the processing velocity. So uh, with things like supply chain, um, you know, many of our customers will look at our on-prem SLA that we created was maybe 24 to 48 hours with a lot of manual processes. Um, now that we have it on AWS, we want to reduce that to a couple hours. Um, and the goal here is to do that deterministically, but also with the processing velocity. So in other words, um, if we can do more scale, we want to land more content. Maybe it's you know, hundreds of terabytes a day. But we expect as that grows, um, the backend infrastructure should be deterministic. So everything should still work at the same pace. Um, so this is kind of key for recognition here uh, in like one of the benefits that it provides. Um, and then conformance is another thing too. So you know, not only say being able to ingest the content, but then conforming it for local use. So maybe we want, want to perceptually compress the images before we actually store them. Um, and that can save on cost on S3. Um, and then just on the integration side, there's some obvious ones, but it really depends. Um, you know, a lot of the um, B2B or B2C um, systems out there, um, some of them will utilize a CMS, others are gonna be a traditional MAM or DAM. Um, and then there's also the option of where do we store the labels? Do we use Dynamo? Um, do we inject that back into, say, the MP4 headers? Um, or do we have sidecar data and maybe Athena's running on top of that? You know, we have QuickSight that's used to interrogate that as well. So these are all, um, I'd say, things that are worth looking at before just jumping in and utilizing uh, or integrating recognition into a pipeline. And then just to look at the, um, you know, the things that are relevant here, right, from a object and scene detection, um, really the important thing here is that um, you're not only identifying objects, but you're also identifying scenes and also concepts. Um, so you know, it sort of goes from uh, sky versus mountain to mountain range to you know, outdoor location. Uh, those types of content or uh, concepts, if you will. Um, on the at least facial analysis side, so some of the feedback loops that we could do is we could look for objects in images um, instead of passing everything for facial analysis. Um, but if we look for objects in, in images, those objects that came, come back may be detected as human, you know, with high confidence or person or people. Um, the thing that we could then do is if we have a, say, lambda step function pipeline, um, is basically take that and only then pass that um, for facial analysis. So if our object label returns that there is a person in the scene, uh, go off and make a secondary API call as a second step uh, in a step function uh, framework, um, and then go and look for facial analysis features. Um, and the reason I say two-phase two instead of doing that one time uh, is that if you do do, say, facial analysis using recognition and you want to return all of these details, for example, not just facial landmarks, but maybe uh, general attributes, like is a person smiling or not, what the demographic data is, what the age range is, um, that can also increase the processing time. And it's not a lot of processing time. You know, you measure this in, say, hundreds of milliseconds. Um, but if you multiply that out for, say, a large image archive, um, this could skew it by potentially days, uh, you know, depending on if you have not optimized these calls. 
Um, and then the other you know, useful thing here is, um, at least from recognition, you know, from ability to uh, use feedback loops, is obviously the moderation labels, um, you know, so de detection of explicit or suggestive content, um, and then celebrity detection. Um, it's worth noting that celebrity detection works against IMDB, so it returns an IMDB URL to those actors. Um, but there are a lot of use cases we see where we get the question, what about my indie production where I know my actors, but they're not part of IMDb, they're not in there yet. Um, you know, potentially it's a whole bunch of actors for different uh, shots or programs, um, but they're more indie level. Maybe they're targeted for, say, YouTube or you know, other OTT platforms. Um, that's actually a, a great case for using um, the celebrity, or at least not the celebrity detection, um, but collections, right? So um, the, the goal there is to basically name uh, each of the actors, they're, they're at least their uh, facial images or photos or you know, headshots, put those in S3, create a collection, uh, index all the actors against that, um, with the back link being to the location on, say, Dynamo, um, you know, with all of their details, for example. Um, and then for each one of these um, you know, detected uh, images that come through sh showing person, for example, uh, do a facial comparison against our home-built collection. Um, so it allows you to build a, you know, your equivalent of a celebrity detection for, say, indie use, for example. Um, just on the topic of you know, best practices further on that, there are limits. I'm not going to talk about the limits here. Those are you know, well documented. But I think if you look at the recognition limits and then you try to figure out what, are these, what is the implication of this um, when I'm, say, doing high-speed processing or having to process a lot of content, um, like I said, operations are fairly deterministic. So you can take that into account for how long it will take to process batches of images. Um, S3 is optimal versus doing inline calls. Um, however, if you have the content locally, um, then it's maybe more optimal. You know, if you have it local for, say, Photoshop or other editing purposes, it may be more optimal not to move it to S3, but to maybe compress the image and just make a direct API call. Um, there's some other things, too, that you can do when images arrive, and this is more particular for user-generated gener content. Uh, you know, if the image is less than 80 pixels, it's fairly certain we won't get much detail out of it. Um, so you could scrub those immediately, uh, saving having to make an API call. Um, and then there's some other things, right? So um, you at least want 1024 pixels. Um, if you're processing, say, 1080p frames, um, you need a 40 by 40 pixel, uh, you know, minimum resolution for faces. So it's all these things to bear in mind as you pass content into recognition. Um, and like I said, the reason I listed this here is that often we'll see people or these customers will come back and say it's not a, it doesn't appear to work for use case X, Y, and Z. Um, and in many cases, it's some of these types of things that you know, have been a malfunction in that process, if you will. Um, and then finally, you know, most of the, um, like the CLI and, and uh, API components that we have will do a fairly good job of throttling. Um, but if you need to process a lot of content in batches simultaneously in a you know, parallel fashion, um, you could look at things like um, first hitting Dynamo and then using Dynamo streams um, and utilizing Lambda off of that to then go and make the calls. Um, so in other words, instead of making a direct call uh, to recognition, uh, you're potentially just putting the asset ID of where the asset is in S3 into Dynamo and then using streams. Um, another great way is to use Kinesis streams as well and basically shard that out. Um, and the reason for that is to basically, if you look at the graph on the right-hand side, and we have a, I think we have part of the architecture blog, um, actually has a fairly lengthy article on this on exponential back-off and control. Um, one of the approaches here that you could look at doing um, is exponentially back off as API calls fail, um, but combine then that with jittering um, the calls that are made um, to try and push more data through the APIs. Um, and you can basically see there's a, 
there's a fairly linear curve of as you start um, adding these other ways to alleviate API blockage, if you will, um, you're able to get more throughput through the system. Um, so it's definitely something to look at. Um, I talked about most of the um, you know, uh, AWS services that would typically be utilized here. Um, you know, there are also asset, uh, asset management, media workflow, uh, content processing, typical use cases. Um, but the other thing that we've seen a lot is, uh, you know, what's the best practice or how can I go about building some kind of a toolkit to do a lot of this work for me? So I, I'll talk about, you know, OpenCV, um, ImageMagic, uh, FFmpeg, and then some other libraries and basically how to componentize those and build, like, say, a Swiss Army knife for doing cleanup. Uh, before you make those recognition calls. Um, I talked a bit about this, you know, in terms of complementary service, services, so, you know, that, that whole end-to-end -end supply chain, if you will. Um, you could look at media processing, so say the elemental services to create proxies uh, to then rip frames out of um, storage on S3, um, decoupling uh, the infrastructure here, so decoupling when the files arrive, uh, from where they're actually processed using, say, uh, SNS, SQS, et cetera, um, fronting things with API Gateway, uh, and then potentially handing off to Batch or ECS uh, or plain EC2 as well for processing. Um, and then the last piece to basically maintain context as you move through these workflows uh, is DynamoDB. So just to get to you know, an example here, uh, and so the rest of this will be around, you know, how would we take a video clip, and this is an open source movie, Tears of Steel, so I basically looked at this, um, and then how would we take these best practices or requirements that we've seen come from customers uh, and you know, construct something to solve those problems? Um, so you know, what is the process or the best process for processing uh, this as an example input? Um, so the one thing we can do to start off is we could just extract all of the frames, right, and pass those in. Maybe we uh, extract, um, and this is using FFmpeg, so extract each or each tenth frame, or one, one tenth of a frame per second. Um, the other thing we could do is we could extract the iframes, um, and there are different use cases for this. So if you think of um, potentially a use case like, say, uh, C-SPAN or, you know, that type of long-running uh, camera um, ingest um, against, say, political figures or talking heads. Um, maybe sampling each tenth frame uh, is a good way to make sure that we're tracking the same person over time. Um, we could potentially use iframes, but it now de is determined by what the length of the GOP is um, and what the duration is between those frames. And the third option here is we could do scene change analysis, right? So um, only extract frames when we detect that the camera has changed location or there's been a cut from one shot to another based on the difference between those pictures. And the reason for this is um, we see this a lot as well. So the one approach is I'm just going to extract everything or I'm going to extract a frame every three or five seconds. Um, that alleviates the ABI calls, but it's still a lot of data, right? So if you look at VOD clips and running those through recognition, a 30-second ad is 900 frames. That's 450 megabytes potentially of data, and then all the API calls that you have to make for that. Um, and that multiplies out as you get up to, say, feature length. Um, so there's some things you can do. You can reduce the capture rate, but maybe that also decimates our accuracy that we're trying to get here. Um, because the one thing, if you extract a frame every, say, three or maybe five or six seconds uh, versus doing scene change analysis, uh, you may get the wrong, uh, the wrong frame or you may get a frame six seconds into that scene. So that's potentially problematic for detection too. Um, you know, so this assumes no post-processing, um, but that's, these are typically the payloads that we would see from this. Um, now, this is one file. Uh, you know, if you had a whole bunch of content arriving and landing on S3, this impacts your S3 storage. It impacts your I.O. against your S3 partitions, et cetera. Uh, you know, you may have to look at how you're partitioning the data. Are you, you know, putting a hash in front of the file in order to 
evenly distributed for good I.O. Um, but regardless of that, it's a lot of content and it's just another problem uh, that needs to be solved. Um, so on the ingest side, um, you know, I'll, I'll get to the previous problem on how we can look at solving that. But the other component here is ingest, right? So um, how can we do images versus on-demand versus live ingest? Um, so if we're looking at recognition for images, we essentially want to do correction on it. We want to then optimize after we've corrected the data and then process that data. And that may en enable us to get higher quality labels out of it. Um, if it's video, uh, you know, we'd be creating a proxy from it and then segmenting that and then actually utilizing the image pipeline to process those images that are coming off that on-demand content. Um, and third, if we're doing live content, uh, one of the novel ways you could look at doing that is potentially uh, landing HLS or dash chunks or if the encoder can support it, segmenting those files every X amount of seconds. Um, if you're doing something like Dash or HLS and it's starting on an iframe, we can potentially take every packet every, say, five seconds um, and just pull that out with FFmpeg and do image recognition against the iframe. Um, so that's an easy way to go from, say, a live stream to either something like, uh, you know, Elemental uh, Media Live, for example, or potentially something like Nginx with FFmpeg and build a whole live processing pipeline there uh, where you can inspect and then store those images too. Um, you know, so it's critical here to build these components to be reusable because if you build the image pipeline, that same code maps well to on-demand and that same code maps well to, uh, to live. It's not much of a stretch to add that kind of functionality. Um, on the right-hand side, I actually, I, you know, I think one of the things worth calling out here is that um, there are some benefits to doing things like extracting only iframes versus extracting a frame every couple seconds. Um, because one of the problems you could get is macro blocking if the you know, video quality is low quality, which is definitely going to skew um, performance against calls to recognition, like objects may get missed. Um, the other thing is if your, say, live stream that's coming in that you're then processing has a lot of, say, discontinuity errors or packet loss, et cetera, um, potentially you can still write that all to disk, um, but you may have you know, loss in the actual uh, transport as well. Um, and that could further skew extracting frames or even being able to extract those. So it sort of brings us to this pipeline uh, in terms of the toolkit, right? So, <clears throat> the one thing that can be done here, at least with uh, Lambda, for example, uh, is to take FFmpeg, OpenCV, ImageMagick, and Spacey. Um, Spacey is an NLP processing toolkit for Python uh, that is high performance because it's compiled with Cython. Um, but essentially, um, you know, the, the good thing here is that uh, if you create a custom compile of FFmpeg, um, you can then binary wrap that for use by Lambda. Um, the same with OpenCV, that can also be compiled. Uh, ImageMagick is native already uh, with Lambda, and then Spacey has to be uh, basically compiled uh, and stripped down. Um, I'll get to that one late, later, but um, you know, OpenCV, uh, you know, if you wanted to reduce the size of that in FFmpeg, a lot of the options there are to take out the pro protocols and codecs you don't need. Uh, most of these have command line options for doing that. Um, but essentially this allows you, or the target here is to build a like multi-factor Swiss Army knife that can run with Lambda that can do any kind of cleanup we want. Um, so we may need to you know, extract frames out of uh, video fragments. FFmpeg would do that. It works great for that. Um, you know, and it'll cope with errors. Um, we may want to do, say, blob or shape detection or cleanup using OpenCV, um, which is a good computer vision framework. Um, image magic allows us to do things like denoising uh, and so forth, and then spacey. Um, there are a lot of other options there. It's a good one for Python. Um, but that allows us to do things like label parsing and normalization, if you will, um, and then semantic comparison between labels. 
So there's one other uh, thing worth talking about here, and this is, you know, what about the things that we don't have? Like I talked earlier about, um, you know, what about if we did custom celebrities um, or we wanted our own set of celebrities? Um, there are a lot of these frameworks that you could look at. You could deploy this um, utilizing object store, so S3 on the back end, EFS for hydration, um, and then potentially uh, our AI armies running, say, TensorFlow, Cafe, you know, whatever use case you want. Um, but a lot of these have already good, good starting points. So, you know, YouTube ATM has about 500,000 hours of small video clips. Um, so if you're looking to do video uh, analysis with deep learning, that's something worth looking at. Um, places as different places in the world, there are about 2.5 million images that are labeled. Um, and then similar for the others, CIFAR is about um, 30 million images of which about 10 or 100,000, depending on the data set you picked, um, are already classified. Um, so you can take these, you can deploy them, you could even use things like NVIDIA Digits, for example, which gives you a UI to work against. Um, and run it on, say, P3s or uh, you know, G3s, for example. So getting back to the scene change extraction, um, I ran this uh, movie just through a scene change uh, FFmpeg extraction with a threshold of 0.4. And the threshold here is um, if there is a change in the scene as we're winding through all of the frames, um, if frame A versus frame B has changed by more than a threshold of X, as I believe it's a logarithmic scale, but if, if it's changed by more than a threshold of X, um, then we know it's a scene change, uh, extract that frame and store it to local disk. Um, so you can see here there are keyframes that have been extracted using scene change extraction, but the primary thing here is uh, we didn't actually get the title of the movie. Um, and that's because it's a fade from black, um, and then the title appears, and then there's a gradual fade to black, so that first scene change might, for some reason, have not been captured. Um, so our first frame is actually you know, not relevant to the content, right? Um, we also have this frame here that's a side profile view of the actor versus a front profile view. So it's valid for the objects, but it's not really usable for, say, facial detection, potentially. Um, and then we have some things that have been extracted that have, from, you know, from a processing perspective, no context, right? So 40 years later in the middle of the file doesn't really mean anything. Um, but there are some things that were valid, right? So we could do facial detection here or potentially here as well. Um, but the gist of this is, you know, how can we go beyond this and look at cleaning up these frames uh, and maybe normalizing this data set to extract better info from it. Um, so some of the things we can do better is the first one would be, um, you know, FFmpeg with a scene change filter is very rudimentary content-aware detection. You know, if there is a change in pixels, store the frame. Um, but there are a lot of other projects that go a little deeper into this. So Python Scene Detect is one, it's an open source project. Um, but essentially, if you think of a scene change, uh, FFmpeg will do that based on pixel boundaries, but there really isn't a scene change per se. So if you look at the graph on the right, you can see some of the, the dips and ebbs, right? And when it gets to a, a dip right at the bottom there, that's actually a complete fade to black. Um, but in many cases, you know, if, if it's a fade over time, over say uh, one or two seconds, um, the end of that is not the start of the scene. We want the middle of that. So, um, you know, that event between uh, uh, at least the valleys uh, on either side of a piece of content, that is the scene that we're looking for. Um, and then secondary to that, we don't want to just capture the black frame right after we've detected it because it's still fading in video content. Um, we actually want to be able to say maybe look after the threshold and grab the first frame. That'll potentially give us better quality. Um, and then there's some other things we could do if we expanded that, right? So um, the pictures on the top right there is a uh, you know, film editing technique, pretty common one, a jump cut. Um, but a jump cut is, can be useful for things like facial detection. Um, so if we, if we detect that there is a jump cut and there's similarity between um, you know, the images on each side of that scene change, 
Potentially, this is something that could be used if we detect labels being person um, for more accurate, um, you know, say, actor uh, or person identification. So going back to the image sequences, um, you know, that whole thing of like the jump cut comparison, comparing the two of those. Um, and then the other problem is uh, if we're capturing these scene changes, uh, and maybe there is a camera cut to something, but it cuts back to the same scene. We don't want to process or store that same image. Uh, so the image at the top left there is, this is all from one scene, um, but you can see in, in the middle, um, the subject has a newspaper over his face. Uh, beneath that, he doesn't. Um, if we use perceptual hashing against this, which is a way of doing uh, image comparison based on frequency domain, uh, not based on pixels. Um, we can see that between uh, the top one and the middle one, we have a 37 uh, you know, weighted value of difference between those frames, but the bottom one has a five. Um, so if we use these same thresholds that we get back from recognition um, and apply it in this fashion. Um, we may say, you know, anything over, say, a threshold detection of uh, 10, I'm just going to ignore because it's potentially the same people in the same scene, and I shouldn't waste time reprocessing that. Um, and perceptual image hashing is important because um, even if we, you know, even if there's no movement in the scene, um, the pixels, if they changed by you know, one hue of color value, the MD5 or the SHA-1 or 256 would be completely different. Um, so the goal there is um, you know, how can we do this uh, image comparison not based on traditional cryptographic hash, if you will, uh, and figuring out where the frames actually do change. So the performance on this is really good. You know, if you wrapped this into, uh, say, um, you know, container or you put it into Lambda. Um, I think I ran it on like an i5 CPU um, and about 65 milliseconds to load two 720p frames, do a differential hash on them and then compare them and get that value back. Is there an actual change between the frames? So you can process a lot of content without needing a GPU uh, and then you're basically eliminating these false positives that we don't need to store uh, and we don't need to process with recognition. So dehash is the most performant. Um, there are a couple others. Uh, a hash is just an average. It gives a lot of false positives. I would avoid it. Um, P hash has been around a bit, um, but dehash is, uh, you know, it's, it's more of a comparison of the pixel gradients. So, um, at least the three images in the middle there basically describe the process on how this hashing works. You know, we essentially take the source image, reduce the size to a couple pixels, um, extract the brightness potentially, uh, and then decimate that. And that basically gives us then a matrix of values, either over pixel you know, brightness range or potentially frequency domain. Um, and that's then used to generate a hash for comparison. So the other thing we can do is image correction as a feedback loop. Um, and this one is actually, uh, you know, we get this question pretty often. You know, my image data is potentially dirty or I don't know the quality of it when it comes in. Um, is there anything I can do with recognition? How would I do more accurate labels there? Um, <clears throat> so at least on the the top right, I talked earlier about this, you know, uh, recognition returning labels like atmosphere or fog, um, where you may not really expect that because those are sort of out of the ordinary. Um, and if you then took those labels as part of, say, a step function pipeline uh, and you reprocessed the data, um, one way to clean up this type of, uh, you know, image artifact, if you will, is called Retinex color restoration. Um, so it basically looks at, from a brightness perspective, how to correct the image. Um, and once you funnel it through that, this also does not need a GPU, by the way. Um, it can be done, say, within Lambda. Um, but once you process the image through this, it identifies or it, it does a pretty good job uh, of surfacing the details that are hidden. Um, so for things like uh, atmospheric issues like this, or potentially low light, um, it also does a really good job of identifying subjects or bringing things 
uh, back where the camera was maybe used in low light conditions. Um, so I've passed images through it, uh, which was shot in close to darkness, run it through retinax, and then actually the people are identified in the scene. Um, so where would you start here, right? Uh, would you write lambda functions and then use image magic? I'd say that the best place to start is recognition will return sharpness and brightness for images. So you can almost look at that as like a, a low cost or zero cost infrastructure to do a first pass and determine if things are out of whack for you know, color and brightness. Um, and then you could pass it through something like potentially image magic and do a color correction for the histogram. So like normalize the colors correct the color balance automatically, and then maybe uh, advanced, you would use something like uh, color correct uh, for an uh, Python image loader uh, to basically run, say, a Retinex algorithm over the content. Um, there's some other things on the image optimization side. So one of the other, you know, I talked about the image sizes passed to recognition. Um, you know, it always helps to pass a good quality image into recognition, um, but potentially, or at least we see it a lot where, uh, you know, there is a limit in the API. So in terms of either if I make a direct call, it's five megabytes. If I make a call using S3 saying, go process this image, it's 15 megabytes. Um, how do you overcome that if you have, say, 35 millimeter uh, photos, right, that are potentially 50 plus megabyte lossless PNGs. Um, you can compress it down, but that also loses details. So the smaller objects then won't get detected, or maybe the larger objects would get detected inaccurately or with a lower confidence, which is really not something we want coming out of recognition. Um, so there are a couple ways around that. One is uh, Beamer that makes a product called JPEG Money. There's also PNG Quant, which is open source. And then Mozilla has MozJPEG. Um, all of these will do perceptual uh, compression without um, uh, human visible image loss, which is also useful for deep learning systems. Um, so on the top right there, you can see um, you know, this particular image has been reduced from 189K to 117K. So that's quite a reduction. Um, and it's very hard to make out the difference. That's a zoomed in part of it. But if you look closer, um, the projector doesn't really reflect it, but there is some dithering on the edges that's been introduced. Um, but you, know, you would only see that if you really zoom into it. So how does this help? Um, so this image has been cleaned up with the first pass with Retinex correction, um, and then passed into um, face detection, um, and I think the important thing here um, is that you can see the one on the left has an age range detection or estimate of about four to nine years old. It's clear this is not a nine-year-old uh, subject, but if you then look at the one on the right, it's now more accurate because we have better details uh, in the picture uh, at around four to seven. Um, the other things that are important here is the confidence factors have gone up now as well. So um, not just the looks like a face, but our smiling has gone up from 98.1 to 99.9. Um, so this is very important from that perspective because uh, for a lot of um, uh, at least recognition operations, you'll want to set a threshold and keep that really high uh, so that you don't have false positives um, returned that are at a lower threshold. So that's all the image processing piece, right? So um, I was thinking maybe it's interesting to talk about dogs, cats, and bananas. <laughs> um, but essentially, the, the concept here is like the, the terminology or the labels that come back from recognition. Um, how do we apply our own custom taxonomy over that? Um, so we have a lot of customers that maybe use this for large image archives, and they already have a taxonomy. Uh, and they really want to align those labels um, with their internal way of tracking assets, et cetera. Um, so maybe everything that like, identifies a person, people, person, uh, you know, child, et cetera, they just want to classify that as human, for example. Um, so one of the ways around this is to use NLP with Lambda uh, as a way to basically uh, calculate the semantic similarity um, 
And it's a big advantage to doing it this way versus trying to keep lists and arrays uh, of words and then trying to match across that via something like regex. It's a lot faster than that. Um, so one of the examples here um, is to use something like Spacey, um, which is uh, I talked about earlier. Um, so it comes with a bunch of models that you can use for NLP modeling. Um, I think like one of the important things here is that um, these models are done as a you know high performance, uh, and then you get vector comparison against them. Um, but the corpus or the size of words, etc., is about 680,000 um, individual words. Um, so from a very basic perspective, this can be really useful, right? So on the right-hand side uh, is using Spacey for simple sentiment analysis. Um, so essentially, all of the labels that come back from recognition, uh, we assign as tokens and put into Spacey, run NLP against it. Um, and this is actually using a higher order level framework called Textacity, which is uh, sort of built on top of Spacey as a lower level framework for NLP, if you will. Um, but essentially, this gives us a bag of words returned by weight. Um, so we can see which are the most common things that are coming back from this video clip if we're collecting all of these labels. Um, on the bottom side, you can see, or at least uh, the bottom line, piece of code there um, is basically similarity scoring. Um, so we basically want to look at, um, essentially we have uh, you know, car, boat, motorbike, uh, but we have, say, a genre for the media we want to process, and we want to identify things such as vehicles. Uh, we can then iterate through these labels and then get a semantic similarity returned on those tokens. Um, so the same way that recognition cl classifies uh, objects by confidence score, um, Spacey does the same thing for words. So you can take those uh, returned uh, object identifiers uh, and their confidence scores, take the words, and then compare that against, say, um, something you're trying to figure out. Are all these uh, things that have come back from this frame similar to this topic I'm trying to model? Um, then the other, op the other last thing here, um, just before I get to the summary, is the um, label data storage, right? So um, where do you store the data and how should you store it? Um, anything coming back from recognition. Um, so at least the one thing to do, uh, especially with the video frames we're analyzing and the fact that we're maybe doing scene change analysis, uh, is to basically store maybe the wall clock time if it's live uh, or potentially store um, you know, the SIMTI timecode offset. Um, so if we're using FFmpeg, it will actually return the PTS offset, so the packet uh, stamp offset. Um, so that's very useful. Um, and then we can actually do things like inject that data into um, Elasticsearch and or DynamoDB. Um, so the benefit of using it this way in Elasticsearch with more data in addition to these labels that we've normalized um, is that we can then do um, you know, fairly common searches across that um, and then find out over time where do these words or where do these terms occur. Um, one thing I have seen is that customers often ask, you know, should, should, I scale up, should I size my cluster for Elasticsearch to a certain size? Um, well, the one way you could look at it is if you have a supply chain and you're landing content in it and you're using Elasticsearch for maybe an operator dashboard, um, is to pot potentially use smaller clusters with the data and then prune those uh, collections using something like Elasticsearch Curator uh, over the top of that. So essentially that gives you, for those that are familiar with MongoDB as an example, um, pretty close to the notion of a capped collection. Uh, where we sort of have the sliding window, but we don't have to allocate potentially a lot of resources or do a lot of cleanup uh, over time. So just getting back to um, you know, taking uh, Spacey and Texacity and then identifying these tokens um, across um, this video clip, right, or this trailer. Um, if you look at the one on the left, that's the non-normalized version, so essentially we have a lot of people, human, person, that's great, but it's not really useful because I can't really extract any pertinent information out of that. Um, but on the right-hand side with you know, NLP modeling, 
Um, we reduce it to basically statistical analysis, and then we can you know, move the high watermark and the low watermark out. And you can then see that some of the terminology, like military, for example, is, is better exposed. Um, so given that the clip is you know, sci-fi uh, movie trailer, um, these are much more relevant labels that, that have been come, uh, that we got back. So just to wrap up, um, you know, we can sanitize the media, um, but that actually enables us to get better confidence scores and better positive positives back from recognition uh, versus having to, you know, maybe do multi-stage cleanup on that data. Um, but the types of things that we could do since we then have normalized this data, uh, essentially we've used the, you know, scene changes, et cetera, to basically visually topic model um, this data, right? So it's got a lot of use cases from there. We could, you know, potentially um, use multi-stage transcoding or we could then pass a genre or with an encoding profile to, uh, you know, re-encode content a certain fashion. Um, we could also do timeline-based discovery. So if you think of, you know, what if you wanted to build something like X-Ray, um, uh, which you know, Amazon Video has, right? One of the options here is to do the scene change analysis um, and then look at things like those jump cuts where the actual scenes are um, and then do multi-pass against the actors. Is it a person? Okay, let's go and do um, uh, you know, celebrity detection or detection against our own uh, internal data set in a collection um, and then utilize that as a way to build something like a uh, X-ray type service. So pretty useful from that perspective. Um, and then lastly, you know, if we are getting labels back, so if, say for example, atmosphere is a label, we could use that as some layer of intelligence, if you will, in order to drive cleaning up our content, uh, such as Retinex algorithm applications there. So with that, um, thank you. There are um, a couple other sessions um, that are very much related to, to this one, also on the um, recognition genre, if you will. Um, I think there's also a workshop coming up, so um, definitely check these out too. Uh, so thanks, and I'll take any questions. Yes. So, yeah, so the question was, uh, how accurate would this be for something like sentiment analysis where most of the objects coming back are objects? <laughs> so I, I think that's where you would look at using uh, the ML, NLP processing to differentiate between the objects as labels and other things like the concepts and scenes. So recognition will give you back all those labels, but it's often very hard to tell without looking at it with NLP, the difference between an object and a scene or a concept. So if you were to use that as a way to separate that, you could essentially just drop all of that data on the side and then you've extracted your you know, scenes, uh, for example, uh, or concepts. And the thing is you can also then use that as uh, like a second and third dimension for tagging that in say an asset management system because uh, that's more beyond, you know, what you'd have with simple object tagging. Just one follow-up Yeah. Uh, moving away from images and onto video content, uh, would the tool actually work for a use case where I have to scrape the video for rolling credits to extract metadata about the cast and crew? So the question was, could this work for uh, extracting rolling credits? So, uh, yes, but that would be a technique where um, you may look at the scene changes and then you know your credits are going to roll last and there's typically not a scene change. Um, but since it's flipped to credits, you know where the boundary start is of that in terms of the frame offset or the time offset. Um, and then basically use that and then extract every single frame after that uh, and then pass that through um, OCR recognition. So... Yeah, so, so the OCR functionality on recognition does a really good job of 
uh, fonts and typefaces, even handwritten words, for example. Um, but it also does a good job of if the, if the lettering or the typeface is being rotated, tilted, or pitched. Um, so it'll give you confidence scores back on its ability to determine I'm 80% confident that this is word X. Um, so if you have, for example, a logo, and you know, maybe the O is replaced with a graphic or something as part of, say, a branding logo, it may infer that you know, that's an O, for example, but it may be a lower confidence because of that. But you take that output and then potentially process that using NLP. Yes. Uh, internally, you mean as part of recognition? Um, yeah, that's actually a good question. So um, the question was, uh, why aren't these image processing algorithms run internally as part of recognition, as part of, say, a pre-cleanup? Um, I think maybe the one, one of the reasons there is that uh, what's to prevent uh, the image processing, processing it the wrong way, and then you basically are creating garbage to feed through the system. So I think one of the concepts there is, uh, the other thing is it no longer becomes deterministic, right? Because how many, how many stages in your pipeline do you then need to process this image data? Um, and that would, going through that pipeline internally would then affect the deterministic nature of returning those labels. So doing that at a huge scale um, may mean that you know, that particular feature, which is a really good feature for recognition, may be skewed or you may not have control over that. So Lambda's really good at like 100 milliseconds, like all of these things I talked about, the cleanup, even the more advanced ones, uh, like say RL filters for uh, image magic, you know, that look at, um, doing like say an unsharp mask in the content without embossing the edges, uh, even those will execute within a couple hundred milliseconds max. And it depends on the image size, um, you know, and what you're doing and what that image magic script looks like. Um, but, you know, Lambda's a really good fit for that if you're not dealing with huge images that you have to slice up. Like if it's gigapixel images, you want to funnel that through something like, you know, ECS or containers or AWS batch. Any other questions? Nope. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Um, so the question is, is it possible to differentiate between someone holding a photo versus the person themselves using depth analysis? Uh, so if you do facial analysis with recognition, um, and this is typical for things like authentication, where someone walks up and stands in, in front of a webcam, um, recognition will not grab the people behind, and it's not because of depth, it's because it grabs the largest face front and center first. So that can be a benefit in this use case or could potentially not be a benefit. Um, but one of the things I listed on the facial analysis slide in terms of crowd detection, um, that allows you to do a one pass, pass an image in and we return up to 100 faces. If there are 101 people in that shot, that 101st person will have the smallest pixel density face. So X by Y. So it sort of goes from the largest working its way through to the smallest. Yeah, so if you're passing, the question there was, and I guess this is, you know, could this be used as a way to, yeah, bypass an authentication system? Uh, yeah, it entirely could be used for that because it's not a biometric process, right? So um, the facial detection is based on, and, and it's really hard to, to think of, is, is there a way to do that? You couldn't do that via color correction because if I held the photo at the right location, you know, it may be valid from like contrast 
sharpness perspective and color perspective. Um, maybe the one thing you could do is um, get multiple shots of the same person. Um, so in other words, in order for you to authenticate successfully, um, we need to grab three photos of your face and we need to make sure that everyone is at a different level of accuracy. So the watermark would be like, say, I think there's a default of like 90%, maybe 85%. And I expect to see at least a 2 to 3% differential between the first, second, and third face. And that way, anyone holding up a photo, even if they tilted or pitched it, recognition will look and it'll see you know, the pitch, your tilt, azimuth, et cetera, and track for that and align it correctly. Um, those would all be within the same maybe 1%. So you'd be able to say, this is someone holding up a photo and trying to move it around to get through the system. Sure. Any other questions? Nope. Thanks.